Um, hi, I'm Tilly, and we will be reading from Mark chapter 9, 14 to 32. And if you're using the black books up the back, it's on page 896. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, What are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If I, uh, if you can... Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You, mu- you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convolutions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, This kind can only come out by nothing but prayer. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Thank you, Tilly. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you, my name's Ed, Senior Minister here at OEC, and it's lovely to meet you, and I would love to meet you um, at morning tea this morning. Uh, We have a wonderful passage ahead of us today. Uh, We're going to go all the way through to 50. So you will need your Bibles open. uh, And uh, why don't we ask the Lord to help us? Father God, we thank you that you always want to reorientate us to your ways. Do that this morning powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. I caught the love of sport and especially the love of cricket from my grandfather. Once a year, he would come to Sydney where we were living. He would disappear early in the morning. He would come home at 7pm and he would sit on the end of my bed telling me stories of test cricket. He would talk about Bradman and Botham, Benno, Border and Boone and that was just the bees. At the age of six, he gave me my first ever cricket bat. I swang it like a sledgehammer. I reenacted hook shots for six. But then when I was seven, he took me outside 
to teach me how to play. I was ready for lessons on all the different shots, but all he said was three words over and over again for the next 14 years. Watch the ball. Focus on the ball. He said, nothing else matters. And he was right. When I focused on the speed of the bowler or on the clouds in the sky or on my beautiful new bat, I got out. When I focused on the ball, I hit it. Focusing on the right thing is the advice for nearly every activity you do. If you want to learn to pitch a baseball, you focus on the spot where you want it to go. If you want to play music in a band on stage, you've got to focus on what the other people are doing on stage. If you want to learn how to drive, you've got to focus on the road ahead of you. If you want to communicate well, you have to focus on listening. If we focus on the really tiny thing, then we miss what is important. If we focus too broadly, then our life stalls. And if you think about the struggles you've had or the conflict you've had this week, I guarantee you it was because of misdirected focus. But focus is not a switch. You don't come to church, flick your focus switch and it's, and it's fine. No, no, focus is a muscle. Focus needs to be trained. Focus needs to be practiced. Focus needs to be corrected over and over again. Well, welcome back to the road to Jerusalem. We are with Jesus and he's teaching his disciples about following him. And what we saw last week is Jesus is completely focused. He is going to go to that cross no matter what. But the blokes next to him, they've got trust issues. It was easy to trust Jesus when he was powerful, so easy. But now as Jesus talks about suffering, it has become very difficult. It was easy to trust Jesus on the mountain of glory, but now walking with Jesus is difficult. And we see that there in verse 14, don't we? James, Peter and John, they come down the mountain to an absolute disaster. For those of you who turn on ABC in the morning, that's what it sounded like. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. What's happening in verse 14? The nine disciples are being publicly heckled for being powerless. And so as Jesus navigates the mess, he teaches them about focus. Have a look at verse 16. Jesus asked the disciples, what are you arguing with the scribes about? But someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. It's horrific. Could you imagine living with this family for a month? This little boy is deaf and speechless. There's no conversation and there's no understanding. Ever since childhood, he has suffered violent seizures. So every birthday cake is a reminder of his great suffering. The suffering, it looks like epilepsy, but there's more going on here, Mark tells us. 
he is controlled by an evil spirit. Wherever Satan is, he is always trying to destroy the image of God. And so that family, they have to avoid the pool. They can't walk around like Canobolus. They can't go camping and have a campfire. And the father is exhausted. He's desperate. Now, whilst demon possession is very uncommon in the first century and in the 21st century, that does not mean Satan is asleep in orange. Satan is at work in our schools. Satan is at work in every sport club. Satan is at work in all the universities. Satan is at work in your workplace. Because wherever life without God is promoted, or where evil practices are celebrated, or where the image of God, the human, is being destroyed, Satan is at work. And gosh, the great liar loves the lie when we say, oh, he's just a little cartoon figure. Loves that. On human strength alone, we are as powerless as the disciples. But that demon met its match in Jesus Christ. Jesus, he saw the horrific suffering for himself as the spirit threw down the boy and did seizure after seizure after seizure after seizure in front of Jesus. But verse 25, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the boy is healed. The image of God is restored. Satan is defeated. Praise God. And everyone leaves amazed. No, that's not what happens, does it? Because this miracle is not about showing Jesus' authority. It's actually not about the crowd. He deliberately does the miracle before the crowds get there. This is a teaching miracle because we are in the classroom of discipleship on the road to Jerusalem. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and the Father about faith. See the clue there in verse 19? You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? After two and a half years, Jesus is frustrated by the lack of faith in people. Jesus has done evidence after evidence, but the disciples, the crowds and the scribes, they're really slow to trust him. And so we see a couple of evidences of this today, don't we? For example, the father, he has jumbled faith. He's tried doctors, he's tried priests, he's tried disciples, and they were all dead ends. And so he comes to Jesus and he thinks he is another dead end. See it there in verse 22? But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. See his jumbled faith? Now, we can feel compassion for the Father, and we should, but that is a foolish statement of unbelief. If you can do anything, and Jesus calls him on it. Because there is never ever a question on Jesus' ability. The question is whether the Father 
will trust God's almighty king because everything is possible for those who believe. Now, that's one of the most abused verses in the Bible. Jesus is not promising a new car or a church jet or health or wealth. He doesn't ever promise you those things if you believe. What Jesus is saying here is, there is no power if you have faith that is jumbled. There is no power if your faith is jumbled. But there is great power if you focus your faith on King Jesus. Verse 24, immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help me, help my unbelief. It's a tricky verse, isn't it? Is it honourable or dishonourable? Well, it's immediate and genuine. Tick. It's honest. Tick. There's a request for help. That's good. It reflects time when we have faith, but we are not confident. But I want to say it's not a model. I want you to imagine ringing Wendell saying, hey, Wendell, come and do a reno for me. I trust you. Actually, I don't really trust you. You see, actually, the statement's quite rude. To say you trust someone but you don't trust them is rude. And there is absolutely nothing in Jesus that is faulty or that would cause us doubt. And so Jesus teaches the father a lesson by healing his son. The second example of faith, of unbelieving faith, is the disciples. They were publicly humiliated. They were unable to drive out the demon. Now, why? Now, you can read lots of books about this, but here's the reason why. Jesus tells us they had misdirected faith. They had faith in their status as apostles. And what's the evidence of that? They didn't pray. They just tried really hard because they were the chosen 12 to do the job. They didn't pray. There is no power without faith in God. The father, the disciples and us, they, we all get the same lesson, don't we? The focus of our faith needs to be Jesus. And so this morning we need to be wary of inward focused faith like the disciples. Now, that's everywhere in Western Christianity because somehow we've got it into our heads into, and we've got this bad habit that we talk about faith as this mystical energy bar. We say to each other, my faith is going well or my faith is struggling. That language is inward looking faith, as if somehow you have a battery of faith that goes up and down in your body. Biblical faith is always external and the amount of faith is never important. The only thing that is important is the reliability and the strength of the thing, person, you are putting your faith in. And there is nothing in Jesus that should ever make us doubt. We also need to be wary of jumbled faith like the father. What do we do when we're stuck? What do we do when we're hurting? What do we do if we face cancer? 
What do we do when our marriage is in trouble? Is our first response to pray to our mighty saviour? Or do we turn to humans? Or do we try harder? Or do we make a list of what the other person's done wrong? Our focus is shown by our prayers. And we have a great saviour who forgives sins and defeats evil. And he went to the cross to show how trustworthy he is. The lesson of this miracle is focus on him. In verse 30, Jesus and his disciples, they continued their journey to Jerusalem. And what's interesting is Jesus avoids the crowds so he can teach his disciples. Jesus, he reminds them again of what is at the end of the road. He will be rejected, he will die and rise again. And if you were thinking, how would you respond? Well, of course, the disciples would be reflective, maybe they'd be inquisitive. Instead, they're having a Barney, having a big blue, and Jesus knew it. Now, how did he know the disciples were having an argument? Did he overhear them? Maybe. Maybe Andrew had smoke coming out of his ears. Maybe Matthew had that grumpy face that Matthew always gets. We don't know. But we do know that he knew what they were arguing about. As Jesus talked about sacrificing himself, they were arguing about status, about which one of the 12 was more important. Why? Because jealousy had boiled over. You can imagine Andrew or Matthew going, hey, what makes you three so special that you got to go up the mountain? Peter, James and John, we just are. You're not a very good leader, Peter. Remember back then? Hey, at least I am the leader. You nine couldn't even get rid of a demon. It left them silent and embarrassed. What we read in verse 33 is Jesus sat them down like a rabbi with pupils. And he said this, brothers, your focus is all wrong. You want to get to the top of the tree? I'm on a journey to the cross. True greatness is not found up there. It is found in self-denial and sacrificial service of others. Have a look at verse 35. If anyone wants to be first... He must be last and a servant of all. And Jesus knows what we focus on shapes how we treat people. We all agree, we're Christians, greatness is all about being a servant. Amen, yes, yes. No, no, you can tell if you get it by how you treat people. Because if your thoughts and dreams and time and energy are on getting to the top, on achievement and comfort and influence then you will spend time with useful people and you will have no time for the nobodies. If your focus is on the saviour and the cross, then you will serve people like Jesus and you will hang out with the nobodies, especially in God's church. And Jesus then illustrates it in two ways. He takes a child Now, you and me, we make a lot of fuss of children, right? If you're on socials, this week is like, my child's starting school, my child's starting school, my child. Like, we just celebrate, celebrate, celebrate kids. But in the first century, 
children were the bottom. They were the absolute bottom. They were the nobody people. Why? Because they had no status and no value. Look at verse 37. Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. What's Jesus' point? True greatness is welcoming the nobodies. It is engaging with people at church at nine with no thought to their status, with no thought to their importance in life, with no thought to their usefulness. And as we do that, we are serving Jesus. We are serving the Father. If at morning tea this morning we've got no time for the nobody, then we have no time for the suffering, rejected and crucified Jesus. This is where the pursuit of self really clashes with Jesus, doesn't it? Who will I engage with at morning tea this morning? Who would not be welcome in my growth group? Who would I not invite because they just would not fit our culture? Are the friends I hang out only useful for my joy and my comfort? Our great saviour serves nobodies. Sinful, religious nobodies like you and me. That's the path to the cross. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. I'll reenact this, right? How dare this nobody who's not one of the chosen 12 cast out demons that we were not able to do? It's not one of John's best moments. What's John's focus? It's protecting his status and excluding others. We've all been in the inner circle, haven't we? Gosh, we love the inner circle and it's so good to exclude people. Jesus won't have any of it. You see what Jesus says? Do not stop other believers serving me. This one, he's not your enemy. He's a nobody, but he's one of mine. That's why he was successful. Now, Jesus is not naive. There are opponents of the gospel in Orange and online whom we we should be completely intolerant of. But if our first response when we meet a Christian is to exclude them, then we've missed the point. The first response needs to be generosity. You've seen probably someone at work this week and you've heard they're a Christian. They're very different to you, but. So how are you going to treat them? Maybe they're at the hospital, maybe they're out at the mine, maybe they're in the factory or maybe they're at the the childcare where you're working. You find out they're Christian. They're different to you. How are you going to treat them? Well, Jesus calls you to serve them. He calls you to stand next to them tomorrow at morning tea because you are on the same team. And he calls you to pray for them, even though they're different. Because what we focus on shapes how we treat people. 
If we at OEC focus on OEC, we will exclude every other church that's different to us. But if we focus not on OEC, but on Jesus, then we're going to be very secure in our salvation. We'll be slow to judge based on style or minor issues. And we will rejoice in God's work at the Presbyterian Church. We'll rejoice in God's work at the Baptist Church. We will rejoice in God's work all across the world because we will focus on welcoming over excluding. Now, since the mountain, Jesus has noticed a pattern of self-focus in his disciples. He's seen they're lacking in prayer. They're pursuing status. They want an inner circle. So in 42 to 50, he finishes the lesson by flipping their focus. He says, brothers, focus on your own behavior more than others. See the flip? The brothers, the disciples, they're very good at noticing what everyone else does wrong. And Jesus says, no, flip that. Look at verse 42. Be intolerant of our sins, our behavior, our attitudes that harm other believers' faith. Because a quick death is better than strangling the faith of another Christian. It's a big warning, isn't it? It is a warning to Joseph Smith's or the Anglican bishops or prosperity teachers who corrupt the gospel and lead people astray. But it also includes you. Because you and me have the ability to cause someone else at church at nine to struggle in their faith. Isn't that a horrific thought? How might we do that? The way you talk about your church impacts other people's faith. The way we speak to our wives, husbands, children, friends, how we comment on Facebook and Instagram, that impacts other people's faith. The importance we place on turning up at growth group and church each week impacts other people's faith. And the sins we tolerate in ourselves impact others. We need to be intolerant of sins and behaviours and attitudes that harm others. And then in verse 43, we need to be intolerant of sins, behaviours and attitudes that harm our faith. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. Jesus is calling for spiritual mortification, not physical. Physical mortification, cutting things off your body, is against the Bible. And all it will do is turn you into a proud person with less body parts. Jesus calls us to cut harmful practices out of our life. With our hands, what we do. With our feet, where we go. And with our eyes, what is important to our life. And so, friends, are there places your feet take you that no Christian should walk into? 
Are there places in the week, either in Orange or online, are there websites and places online that your feet should not take you because it is harming your faith? Cut it off. Are there hidden activities or habits that occupy your mind or your life that are harming your faith? Cut them off. Are there behaviours, interests, patterns that are causing you to drift from Jesus? Well, Jesus says, be decisive. Why? Eternal life is at stake. Kind Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the world. He does not want people to go to hell. His disciples always listen. Now, listen too. It's, it's been like going to the optometrist, right? Jesus has been reorientating our focus. And the temptation to think as we leave church this morning is, oh, I've just got to try harder. I've just got to be better. You see what you're doing there? See the focus has suddenly very quickly gone back onto you. Anytime you think I've just got to feel better or do that, the focus is on you. No, no, no. Let us focus on Jesus and the cross. Because it is at where, it's at the cross where the devil and his lies are defeated. It's at the cross where your old life was crucified and you were given a new heart that beats for Jesus. And it's at the cross where we receive the Holy Spirit who powerfully and lastingly changes you to be like Jesus. Let's journey with Jesus with our focus on him. Let's pray. Lord God, we just love walking with you. And we are so tempted to take our eyes and our focus off you. Keep reorientating our lives back to you. For we know that that is the best life. It's the good life. And it's the life that pleases you. Holy Spirit, do that this week as we listen to your word and as we do community well. May it be seen in how we do morning tea this morning and every day until heaven. Help us to change, Lord, in your strength, by your power. Amen.